Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I seem to be in the news today. That's because yesterday on Media Buzz, I covered for the first time the $1.6 billion Dominion voting machines lawsuit against Fox News. And that segment is online along with some others if you are interested. I will talk about it a little later in the podcast uh, because I think it's a really important issue. And this is the first time I've been able to, as a journalist, uh, assess the claims on both sides. It's a very, very important case that is scheduled to go to trial next month. So we'll come back to that. In the meantime, a lot of praise for the Oscars. Usually these award shows get trashed, but with Jimmy Kimmel hosting uh, and nobody getting slapped, punched, pummeled, kicked, or anything like that, uh, it seemed to be a pretty good night. It was certainly a good night for... Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, which won seven Academy Awards. Uh, Michelle Yeoh, the lead actress in that movie, was the first Asian-American to win Best Actress in the history of the Academy Awards. There was also uh, an Asian guy who said that he had come here from Vietnam and never expected to be standing on Hollywood's biggest stage. And he held up the trophy and he said, this is the American dream. And Jamie Lee Curtis was also in that movie, and she was crying, talking about not just how happy she was to have finally, at this stage of her career, won an Academy Award, but how both of her parents were nominated for Academy Awards, and she was just overcome by emotion. So uh, for once, um, pretty good reviews for the Academy Awards. Now, I seem to have the ability to predict the future. Unfortunately, it does not apply to Uh, buying stocks or anything that would bring me any benefit. But faithful listeners to this podcast will recall that when there was an item about Ron DeSantis' book and how he, by a huge margin, had outsold Donald Trump's political book in 2015 and also Hillary Clinton's, uh, I said... This is not going to stand without some commentary from Donald Trump. First day, second day, didn't happen. But here it is. Trump threw a tantrum over the comparisons, according to this uh, story, and he said the following. Some in the fake news are falsely stating that Ron DeSanctimonious' book is doing as well as Letters to Trump, my new book. Well, no. It was compared to the book that you put out in 2015, as you were gearing up to run for president. But anyway, this is the angle he took. This is fake news in that letters doesn't even come out until April 25th. Ron has groups buying his book in order to inflate sales. Okay, so this is like the election is rigged, right? Ron is inflating sales. Well, I mean, there may be some bulk buying here, which is not unheard of in the publishing industry. In fact, on his first day, his book was already 30% discounted. I don't know where that was. Letters to Trump has much different pricing and is a coffee table book. You'll love it. (laughs) So he ends up doing this pitch. But there's no 
there's no comparison between this book that hasn't come out yet. The comparison is to the political book, as I mentioned. All right. So Silicon Valley Bank, second largest bank failure in American history. And it's my sad duty to report that Jim Cramer, the mad money guy on CNBC, uh, just a month ago was telling people to buy stock in the now failed bank, saying the bank's stock price was cheap, ready for a rebound. Um, and I'm sorry to say, anybody took Kramer's advice is out a lot of money, depending on how much they might have invested here. The ninth best performer year-to-date is SVB Financial. This company is a merchant bank with a deposit base that Wall Street had been mistakenly concerned about. Anyway, he went on and on. So, uh, here's why this is a huge deal. In fact, President Biden spoke about it this morning because when you have a bank failure of this magnitude, it can, of course, undermine confidence in the banking system. There could be a run on that bank. The, the Fed's also closed a, a second bank, a signature bank. There can be a run on banks across the country if people get nervous. Are their deposits safe? So, what's happened is The Fed's Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was looking for a buyer over the weekend, couldn't find any company that wanted to take on um, the liabilities and assets of Silicon Valley Bank. So the Feds are not taking it over. So it's not a classic bailout, but they are um, guaranteeing under FDIC rules that anybody who had money in the bank will not lose a dime. Now, you would think this would be standard practice, but in fact, under FDIC rules, it's only up to $250,000 that are insured by the FDIC. And yet there are a lot of rich entrepreneurs, uh, tech giant types in Silicon Valley who have way over $250,000 in that bank. And the administration is going to protect those funds and make them whole. I'm not so sure that's a good idea. They took the risk of putting uh, so much money in a single account. And what the president said this morning was that, you know, he kind of acknowledged that it was a failure of regulation, pointing out that during the Trump administration, um, some of the tighter steps for uh, making sure that banks had enough money on hand and could deal with any stress tests was rolled back or rolled back in part. But the Biden's message was this. No federal takeover, um, no taxpayer money involved, because instead the money to make everybody whole will be taken from the bank fees that banks kick into this fund. Investors who bought shares in that bank will lose their money. He said that's how capitalism works. And I'm going to have a lot more to say about this in the coming days. Uh, I I know this was a failure of regulation, but where was the tech press? Why wasn't there any reporting? And maybe there was some that just didn't get picked up about the shakiness of this bank that is so important to the Silicon Valley um, economy. You know, there's a chapter in my first book, Media Circus, about what an awful job the media did on the SNL crisis, the savings and loan crisis in the late 80s, early 90s. All the signs were there, the the low-interest mortgages that were being shoveled out that people couldn't afford, but they were taking them anyway. That was a much bigger and broader and more systematic 
uh, situation, I think, as of now, we'll see what happens with the Silicon Valley Bank. But the thing is, maybe there's a justification for the over 250K because uh, a lot of the entrepreneurs or startup guys, they're almost always guys, in the Valley um, now need that money to make payroll. They may have small businesses or they may have startup companies. And you don't want a situation where there's a uh, trickle-down effect where businesses have to close or lay off employees because their owners can't make payroll. So a lot more to talk about there. Uh, oh, President Trump has a, another uh, comment on this. The former president saying Joe Biden will go down as the Herbert Hoover of the modern age. We will have a Great Depression. Far bigger and more powerful than that of 1929. As proof, the banks are already starting to collapse. Three exclamation points. Now, I'm sorry, but how is that helpful? Like, I understand you're running for president and you want to get your old job back and you want to trash Biden. Whether you, If you want to argue it's the Biden administration's fault, that's fine. But the banks are already starting to collapse? This is not, you know, when this happened in 2008 during the fiscal crisis, John McCain didn't say... Uh, didn't completely and totally try to undermine uh, faith in the banking system. He actually joined with Barack Obama uh, and President Bush in trying to stabilize the situation. Wowza. Okay, story number one, the Dominion lawsuit. Now, those who watch Media Buzz may recall that a couple of weeks ago, I went on the air and said that the company had decided that I couldn't report on this as an employee of the company. I said I strongly disagreed. And that looked to be the end of it. But let's just say there were additional conversations. And late this week, I got the green light to go ahead and be a reporter. To use the platform I have to inform Fox News viewers, as well as anybody else who's interested about this lawsuit. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is about four and a half minutes of television time, which is a very long period of time to just be reciting something. In other words, I'm not going out and interviewing people. We did play a little sound. What I started out by saying is that I'm not sugarcoating the allegations in this suit or the fact that Fox has taken a hit in the court of public opinion. That got picked up in the headline by Mediaite, which, by the way, ran a very fair story. Uh, a balanced story on what I said on both sides. But I also said there's a crucial First Amendment argument here, and this all has to do, of course, with the unproven claims of 2020 election fraud by Donald Trump and his allies. So Fox says Dominion, by putting out uh, in these legal filings all of these things that I'm sure you've heard or read about, um, is cherry-picking and taking things out of context. The quote from Fox News is, Dominion has been caught red-handed, using more distortions and misinformation in their PR campaign to smear Fox News and trample on free speech. And then I made this point because, you know, I've just been, I read everything about this and watch everything about this. And I've just been bombarded. Fox's competitors and critics are denouncing the network. And, you know, if you're going to argue First Amendment, they have a right to do that. But many of them are not just rooting for Fox to lose this suit, but for the company the Fox Corporation, to be wiped out. Why? Because they can't stand the mostly conservative views of a relative handful of opinion hosts. That's the essence of free speech. Um, 
it's amazing to me that other news organizations want to root for the demise of this news organization. But of course, Fox has always had high-profile detractors in the rest of media. Um, and let me move on. So the essence of the suit, if you're not familiar with it, is Dominion saying there's a gap between what some hosts were saying privately, that they didn't believe Trump's fraud claims or didn't like the president, and what was said on the air. And there's lots and lots and lots of examples like that. Dominion argues that Fox duped the audience to boost ratings. And I point out that, look, it's embarrassing. Any company's internal messages, if they were suddenly spilled into public view, that would be embarrassing. But here's some things you may not have heard. Maria Bartiromo invited Dominion CEO John Poulos to come on her show, but he declined. He declined that and numerous other interview requests. So she read a statement from Dominion instead. Poulos said a month after the election, what you're missing is that no customer cares about the media. It's just more words from their perspective. This is a company that's saying, you know, its business reputation was ruined. This is the being alleged in the lawsuit. And in private correspondence, uh, Bart Romo, who allowed uh, Trump lawyer Sidney Powell on her show, where she spewed a lot of this, these unproven claims, uh, Maria saying, I'm not sure what to think about these unsubstantiated election fraud claims. We will need to see hard evidence in the next three weeks. And what I said is, look, some hosts dealt with these accusations and allegations skeptically, others did not. Fox aired that news conference, you probably remember it because of the uh, hair dye running down the side of Rudy Giuliani's face, in which Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani made these unproven claims that Dominion machines were created in Venezuela uh, to help Hugo Chavez steal elections. And then I played a soundbite from Sidney Powell saying, all over the country, there were Dominion machines were switching a certain percentage of votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Is that ludicrous? Yes. There's been no proof since then offered of that. Rupert Murdoch, in an internal message, said this was really crazy stuff, talking about the news conference, damaging everybody, I fear. Then you had uh, email from Tucker Carlson, or a message, privately describing Sidney Powell as a liar, but then he publicly called her out on his show after um, his producers kept texting her for evidence of her allegations. Now, this all started the period under scrutiny when Fox's ratings were dropping after the network projected that Joe Biden had won Arizona. And Fox stuck by that call. Biden did win Arizona, but it was very, very close. And so you have a lot of internal messages from network executives who were worried about alienating the pro-Trump, heavily pro-Trump audience. Fox News CEO Suzanne Scott, we will highlight our stars and plant flags, letting the viewers know we hear them and respect them. A lot of this had to do with the tone of the reporting. Rupert Murdoch testified that some opinion hosts did endorse the unproven election fraud theories, but not all of Fox, he said. And he said, I would have liked us to be stronger in denouncing it in hindsight. Now, Fox says this claim of $1.6 billion is inflated, noting that a private equity firm bought three quarters of Dominion five years ago for $38 million. We'll see how that plays out. 
Legally, Dominion has to prove that Fox acted with malice or reckless disregard for the truth. And there was a lot of straight reporting by the news division, which also caused some friction. But, I concluded, the fact that some people in the chain of the command privately dismissed the fraud claims as nuts or outlandish or insane doesn't necessarily mean Fox couldn't cover and comment on the extremely newsworthy spectacle of a president saying an election was stolen. That's why the case is a major test of the First Amendment. And by the way, the New York Times yesterday, after running a lot of pieces criticizing Fox, and and look, again, people criticize Fox all they want. A lot of this stuff that's coming out, you know, showing a contrast between what was said publicly and what was said on the air, um, is ammunition for those who don't like Fox. But New York Times piece yesterday said, despite all of that, Fox could still win this suit, according to some legal experts, because some of the more tantalizing uh, internal messages, the contrast between who said what privately and what they said on the air, not only may not go to the heart of the question posed by the First Amendment, which is, does this fall under the banner of fair comment and commentary? Most of the crazy claims came from guests. Now, you can certainly question, should some of those guests have been put on or should they have been put on as late as they were? Um, Dominion, as I mentioned, you know, declined an opportunity to have its CEO on. There was one spokesman who did do one interview uh, with Eric Sean of the News Division. But finally... The Times says, this is not me, that a lot of that stuff may not even be able to be admissible as evidence if the judge rules that it has nothing to do with the heart of the case. So a lot of legal people sounding off about this. The case is scheduled, at least. There's going to be arguments on whether or not the case should go to trial or thrown out in about 10 days. And then if it's not thrown out, the case would go to trial in Delaware in the middle of April. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number two, in Politico, Rich Lowry writes that Ron DeSantis used to be a Reagan Republican, but now he's trying to square that. This is uh, quoting uh, somebody from, uh, somebody in the Trump camp saying this to Axios. Uh, where he's actually trying to do a populist and nationalist campaign because that's how Trump has remade the party. So once upon a time, says Rich, pretty much every Republican wanted to be Ronald Reagan. But if the Trump campaign gets its way, Reaganism will have gone from passe in 2016 to an affirmative vulnerability in 2024. I mean, this is kind of amazing to me because Ronald Reagan was an icon um, and a more successful president than even many of his liberal detractors expected him to be once he was elected in 1980. Look, Lowry points out, Reagan left office 34 years ago. That means, as of 2020, more than half the Americans today have no memory of him, no direct memory. Trying to run on the version of the Reagan platform now would be like trying to run on Abraham Lincoln's program in 1899. Um, he goes on to say, you know, Reagan had a lot of strengths, some weaknesses. He was hawkish on foreign policy, but he was always prudent. Um, 
he was right on much, wrong on some things such as immigration, in Lowry's view. He was a free marketeer, but he wasn't doctrinaire. He accepted the New Deal. All of which sounds like, not to me, like not particularly controversial stuff, but that's not where the Republican Party is today. So the standard Republican approach used to be, and this was very much in the Reaganite mold, that cut taxes, reduce the debt, and everything else was less important, except possibly judges, particularly in the more modern era. Uh, Trump ran on those priorities in 2016, although he was only serious about the tax cuts, says Lowry. Well, you know, he also broke with GOP orthodoxy by saying he would protect Medicare and Medicaid, and he is also saying that today. Trump wants to tempt DeSantis to follow him in his MAGA more than ever messaging. But the governor can only go so far in this path. He's not going to peel off enough Trump voters to beat Trump. He has to win over a segment of the Trump populace, but also carrying the more traditional Republicans who like Reagan more than Trump. Maybe it's not a coincidence that last weekend, uh, while skipping CPAC, Ron DeSantis went to the Reagan Library and delivered a speech there in front of that huge Air Force One. I don't know if the speech was in front of Air Force One, but the pictures certainly were. And I've spoken at the Reagan Library. It's a magnificent and very interesting facility. All right, number three. The New York Times is assessing, since we're talking about Ron DeSantis, um, how he is as a retail politician. You know, the reports always say uh, he's not very warm, he's kind of taciturn, he's all business. And it does raise the question of, you know, can you be elected president if voters don't particularly love you personally, but like what you stand for. So they're kind of critiquing, uh, you know, he spent a couple days in Iowa. Um, His preference for policy over personality can make him seem awkward and arrogant or otherwise astonishing in person, depending on the voter or the success and failure of the one-on-one exchanges as he has. Many Republicans view his style as an antidote to the character attacks and volatility of the Trump years. So, continuing with this critique of, you know, how does Ron DeSantis do on the stump? Because this is the first time, obviously, he's going out as a national candidate. And by the way, he's not officially in yet. He won't be until after the Florida legislative session wraps at the end of May. But the Washington Post reported over the weekend that Ron DeSantis is privately telling um, certain people that he's running no ifs, ands, or buts. Not a shock exactly, but confirmation that he does plan to get in. So DeSantis is sort of embraced his reputation as a political brawler, according to the Times, uh, lacking the warmth and charisma that helped Bill Clinton, John McCain, and others. That's just not who he is, and I don't know that you can fake it. You certainly can gain more experience at talking to voters on the stump. Look, he can't be a horrible retail politician because he won a landslide re-election victory in Florida, including carrying Miami-Dade County. How about that? So there's a poll in Iowa, 20% of Republicans say they don't know enough about DeSantis to have an opinion about him. That's a Des Moines Register uh, poll. Just 1% said the same about Trump. Yeah, like nobody's not got an opinion about Trump. Um... So the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, some people were interpreting this as a kind of a semi-endorsement, was going around the state with DeSantis. And by the way, she's doing the same thing with Trump today. 
So it wasn't an endorsement. It was just her being hospitable to visiting Republican candidates. She did a little sort of interview in one of these Iowa towns, Davenport. She asked about his wife, Casey. They have three young children. But he turned the conversation back to a policy discussion. In Des Moines, when she tried to um, throw in an off-the-cut anecdote, DeSantis smiled and then promptly continued making his previous point. So as a retail politician, I think he's got a lot to learn, but really it does come down to this. Do you, how important today is the politics of personality? Or will Republicans decide based on who they think can win? That would be important. And also who they think can do a good job if they win the White House. With Trump, you've got four years to look at and decide whether you want four more years of that. With DeSantis, you've got his Florida record, but it's very different. And the national media scrutiny is going to ramp up when he officially becomes a candidate. Now, from there, I'm going to slide into story number four, uh, in which National Review says, so I guess we're still with DeSantis. This is the special Ron DeSantis edition of Media Buzz Meter. I didn't plan it this way. It's just all these pieces caught my eye. But wait, we got another one coming up behind this, uh, a deep dive that I think you'll like. Um, that now there's a sort of a hysterical tone, says National Review, as many in the mainstream media say, well, DeSantis, he'll be even worse than Trump. Why? Because he shares most of Trump's policy goals, but he's more disciplined, he's a lawyer, uh, he'll actually get things done, he won't be distracted by these insult contests and grievances that Donald Trump, you know, to this day continues to, you know, it's, it's, if you like Trump, you love that about him. He's a fighter. If you don't like Trump, you would want, but you're more to the conservative side or even an independent, you would favor um, a guy who can get the job done without distractions. So National Review tries to make the case that, you know, the media have been beating up on Republican candidates, you know, going back many decades. But now you have, and I mentioned on the show yesterday, NBC historian and contributor Michael Beschloss saying that DeSantis is like a little Mussolini in Florida. Here's Molly Jong Fast of Vanity Fair saying, there's a fair bit of evidence to suggest that DeSantis is as dangerous as Trump, if not more. He's already governed the state, the Sunshine State, like a banana republic. And then you have Margaret Sullivan writing in The Guardian saying, she goes through all the conservative policies that he stands for, that she doesn't like, and she says, if he wins the presidency, this will be even a more threat to the country and the world. And she says, Margaret Sullivan says, that it's appalling that Ron DeSantis is getting such fawning media coverage. And I kind of like slapped myself and said, what, did I fall asleep and miss this? Am I living in an alternative universe? But there's only one sense in which that's true. And that is the horse race sense. You know, the media have built up the governor of Florida to be Donald Trump's principal challenger. Now, if you look at the polls, the primary polls, 
Trump is way ahead of DeSantis by, you know, big double-digit margins, but, you know, the campaign hasn't really gotten underway, or at least it has with Trump, but not with DeSantis. So in that sense, DeSantis gets good press because, you know, you look at the polls, and it's absurdly early, but, you know, Nikki Haley, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, who took a slap, a couple of slaps at Trump at the gridiron dinner over the weekend— saying he endangered my family on January 6th. He's said version of that before. Um, but also sort of appealing to the journalists in the audience, trying to be a little funny and talk about, you know, more directly criticizing Trump than any of the other contenders are at this stage. Certainly Nikki Haley, no matter what you ask about Trump, you know, sidesteps the question. So that's where this ends up, which is if... Ron DeSantis is a better administrator, better bureaucrat, a better, uh, more organized guy who, you know, went to Ivy League schools, both for college and law school, Yale and Harvard, which makes it a little bit harder to run as a populist, I would be the first to say. Um, But if the media are now painting... DeSantis as a worse version of Trump because he would share many of Trump's goals but have more of an ability as an administrator to achieve those goals. Well, it's certainly going to reinforce those on the right who say, you know, it wasn't just that you didn't like Donald Trump or thought he was, you know, a crazy authoritarian, which, of course, the media feel vindicated after January 6th, is that you don't like Republicans, So here comes the next plausible Republican contender for the White House, and you're saying he's worse than Trump. So I'll have more to say about that, too, as the campaign goes on. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. So now, story number five is a deep dive. And the occasion for this underwater excursion is Andrew Sullivan writing about the war over transgender people. And it is such a vicious war, not only between conservatives who, for example, don't want transgender students to compete in sports and things like that. Like, I get all that. But between the sort of mainstream gay community, of which Sullivan is a leader— Um, a guy who wrote an essay making the case for gay marriage, I believe, back in 1989 when he was editor of the New Republic. But anyway, let me pick up, let me start with this piece. He writes at Substack. Um, In a sign of growing extremism and illiberalism on the anti-woke right, the Daily Wire writer Michael Knowles gave a speech at CPAC and said there could be no middle way in dealing with transgenderism. It's all or nothing. If transgenderism is true, if men really can become women, then it's true for everybody of all ages. If it's false, then it's false for everybody. But then he goes on to say, and this is what has sparked a debate, you know, beyond Andrew. Here's the exact quote. If it is false, then for the good of society, and especially for the good of the poor people who have fallen prey to this confusion, transgenderism must be eradicated from public life entirely. No one would be allowed to be transgender. So Sullivan says 
that that is, you know, walking up to the line of basically saying that. But Knowles says, I mean, Sullivan says, look, he maybe he has a semantic point. He didn't quite call for it. But come on, if he said we need to eradicate homosexuality or Judaism from public life, we'd know what he meant. And there was a resignation at, da- at Daily Wire over this. Oh, Christina Buttons, uh, who did cover uh, gender pediatrics for the Daily Wire until that speech by Knowles, says the following, Andrew's quoting her. On this issue, it's extremely important to distinguish between people and ideas so as not to feed into left-wing manufactured hysteria about impending genocides. The political right often rails against identity politics and group labels, yet fails to distinguish between transgender people and transgender activists, who, of course, get most of the media attention. This is a critical distinction between speaking truth and being tactless, sticking to the facts and sticking it to the libs. So... Look, I find that kind of rhetoric to be troublesome. And as I say, there's a lot of debates about what should happen in terms of policies towards transgender people. When you use a word like eradicate, um, obviously you're going to get a lot of people up in arms. Now, Andrew Sullivan says, there are obvious exceptions in publicly funded education, specifically for minors. We understand that a five-year-old is not a 25-year-old. And when she is taught by publicly funded authority figures, the public gets a say in what is taught. This comes up actually in Florida, where what opponents have called the don't say gay bill is not that. It's third graders or younger in public schools uh, should not be taught. And I think this is a popular position with parents about sexual orientation or gender identity. Because they're third graders or second graders or first graders or kindergartners. Um, I don't have an issue, says Andrew, with legislatures mandating basic curricula and removing highly controversial ideas. To some, this feels like a surrender to the fanatics. Andrew says about 16 years old is a good boundary uh, for what can be taught and not taught. And it is in part. A surrender, he says. When powerful elites fall prey to a new ideology, and when they control the core institutions of our society, academia, media, corporations, almost every foundation, healthcare, federal government, they can sweep a lot before them for quite a while. But, he goes on to say, and actually he comes to the DeSantis legislation, I had forgotten that. Uh, You cannot defend a free society by copying the tactics of those who oppose it. And a proposed law like Ron DeSantis, as he names the bill, effectively hands all academic life to partisan politicians who control faculty and curricula, is a profoundly illiberal response to illiberalism. So, looking more at what he had to say, and by the way, uh, White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre called out Republican leaders for not condemning what Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire said. Um, and you know, it's politics is politics, and she's entitled to speak out, too, on behalf of the president. Wrapping up here with Sullivan, the last thing we want to do to critical theory, he says, is give it the glamour of forbidden knowledge when it's so easily unraveled, so swiftly disproved, and so manifestly flawed. It thrives because of institutional power, 
because it fits in with the human need to generalize. So all these people are alike, and if you are a man who wants to be a woman or a woman who wants to be a man, um, that must be stigmatized. It's a kind of emotional blackmail, says Andrew. Not unlike the race debate, where so much of it uh, revolves around claims of white supremacy. So my final thought is this. It is about people. It's also about public policy. The public policy debate is absolutely fair, whether you agree with what some uh, on various sides of this issue are saying. And it's necessary because you got taxpayer dollars involved. When it comes to saying, essentially, whether people have a, some kind of right to be transgender, I mean, I can't imagine having this discussion 10 years ago when it didn't, maybe 15 years ago. You know, obviously, people like Bruce Jenner transitioning to be a woman. Um, it's changed the public perception of a lot of this. And the Biden administration has appointed certain transgender people to high office. But when you get down to people and you say it must be eradicated, whether you meant that literally or not, you're saying people won't have the right to choose. And I think we went through this with the gay rights movement, and I think we're going through it now again. Thank you for bearing with, especially that last part. It's a very difficult subject to discuss and tends to get heavily politicized by related issues. And thank you for listening. And I hope you had a good weekend. And thank you for listening to my report on the Dominion lawsuit, uh, which I expect I will continue to cover. And I hope you come back tomorrow so we can do more of this with more Buzzbeater. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. 